Hi, this is Bill Allerton from Urban Tiger Radio wishing a Happy New Year to all and sundry. Uh, Saturday is 6th of January. Um, I realise I probably haven't spoke to most of you recently, so there you go. Happy New Year from me. The story this week is another one from my collection, Firelight on Dark Water, a collection of tales of the warm and wonderful. And here is how this story came about, because this is where I come back to one of my favourite themes, which is being seven. You see, I never see myself as any older than seven. I think it's a wonderful age. It's an age where you can actually pick up a Christmas parcel and without unwrapping it, know exactly what's in it. And it has a sense of wonderment. So here we are back at being seven. Now, one day in Lutro on the sunny Isle of Crete, I attended a workshop run by Bernadine Evaristo. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's a wonderful short fiction writer and worth looking up. So that's Bernadine Evaristo. The purpose of the exercise that day was to consider what we would say to our younger self if we could travel back in time. Would we warn him or her about the girl or boy who would founder our teenage ship on the rocks? Would we give them financial advice? In fact, what indeed would we or should we warn them of? I considered this for a while and began to write with the premise that if I went back with advice and it was heeded, then perhaps I would not be sat here in the glorious sunshine considering this problem. I could be anywhere, in prison even, or I could have ceased to exist altogether. Whatever transpired, I would not be me, and being me is not necessarily an unhappy thing. It has its benefits, although I've not always been aware of them, and this project made me think harder than usual. So I came up with a different solution. I began by looking at the things we lose as we get older, acuity of thought and vision, the tempering of our expectations and the ability to think outside the box with that freshness of eye that comes with being seven. So, instead of giving him something when I went back, I decided to borrow that freshness of eye. The Big Idea Do I know you, mister? he said. I thought, no, but you will. I watch his face twist with a slow bewilderment. He turns around quickly, this way and that, never losing me from the corner of his eye. Where did you come from? he said. And I smile at the quiff his mother lovingly raises every morning. I see in the mirror the dark hair spilling out between her fingers, tucked by the comb. A quiet, musty smell pervades his clothes and skin, and I guess that here, now, it must be Thursday. That doesn't matter, I said. Everybody comes from somewhere, he said, and I remember the check of the shirt he's wearing. Know well how the blues and the greens would feel against my skin, the soft flannel of the short grey trousers with the hard ridge of doubled seam that I know is chiding his leg, making his crotch sore. He shifts from foot to foot, 
rocking purposefully in the sunlight that spills into the yard from the lips of three-storey terraces, steaming attic crumpled with stale beds beneath glass lights fastened shut to keep out a sudden rain. Billy! I register the slight shock that displaces his perennial smile. Billy, go to the toilet, I say. He hops, undecided, then streaks for the familiar door, third along the block with its neatly cropped pages of the Sheffield Star pegged behind on a rusty nail. While I wait, I realise that I can't easily tell him how I know these things, or how to prepare himself for being me. He returns amidst the sound of falling water and plants his feet square slightly apart, in anticipation of the breadth of frame he will one day have. I reach out to touch the short sleeve of his shirt, checking my own memories, testing my own age for symptoms. He steps away, backwards. Tell me a secret, I say. He wonders, still smiling, guessing how deep he dare press into the stream that runs beneath small boys, where they sit on causeway edges, dangling their fresh imaginations into their flashing, caustic, dangerous fantasies. Last, last Friday, he says, coming closer with a shadowed sideways twist. But you won't tell my mum I told you, will you, Mester? Despite myself and him, I let out a short, bitter laugh. The crumbling ochre brick and the stone-silent windows of the yard push it back at me. I promise. He scuffs his feet, his gaze falling abjectly on the bared leather toes, the brogues with the two high sides that are irritating the scabs on his heel bones, the laces he has just worked out how to tie. Last Friday, he says. My dad set fire to the chimney. I try hard to look surprised, but fail. Is that your best secret, I say. He squints slyly at me, then spins on one foot, always out of reach. No, he says. Then what is? Well, it's my best secret. What is? If I told you, then it wouldn't be, he said. Do you tell your mum your secrets? I ask. He shrugs, but I already know the answer. His socks dishevel themselves heedlessly around his ankles, one three inches higher than the other, flagging up even now at seven, the impending imbalance in his soul. Where did you come from, Mester? He searches my face for things he might recognise. What's more important, I say, is where you are going to. I know that will be cryptic enough to trigger in him that lapsing but insatiable curiosity. I can't go anywhere, he says. His toe stubs the concrete, a temporary rolling hopelessness chastening his voice. My mum says, Where would you want to go? I ask. I perch myself on the lid of a steel dustbin. He dances out of reach, smartly, eyes left and right, displaying an awareness that will soon restrict him to seek security above all else, colouring his life 
like the checks of his shirt, the thin red line of small successes, the blue of impending sadness, the green of the insidious jealousies that will fade but never wash clean in the wreckage blue of his circumstance. I don't know, he says, with a petulance, as though I'd expected him to fall fully formed and complete at my feet. Not yet. What if you never know? I ask. My mom says I will. She says. And then he slides his face up to the sun where the slicing light touches and frames the memory of her words. We speak them together. She says, I'm full of big ideas. He stops, his smile for once frozen and impenetrable. What are you, Mester? I think for a moment, then smile openly at my ability to retreat at will through the downward years. I'm a big idea. He warms again at that, and I see the wall behind his eyes erode. I'm not scared, he says. Should you be? He pushes his hands deep into his pocket, withdraws the seashell I know is there, turns it in his fingers, plunging one into the small pink ear before returning it back to the pocket without a hole. Perhaps, I say, why should you be scared of an idea? Mom, says mine, will always get me into trouble. Hmm. I nod in agreement, watching him, watching me. Will you get me into trouble, Mester? he says. Lots of it, I say, and with a lot of people. But you'll survive. Your eyes, he says, they're the same as my mum's. But, but your hair is silver, like my granddad's. Does that mean you're old? He takes a step closer, leans in towards me as far as he dare. I back away a step. Do you know my mum? he says. Yes, I tell him. Shall I fetch you? No. No. How can I see her young again, knowing she will always be? Something inside me tears open, and I drop through, a sensation of rope around my throat, a pressure of fluid hot behind my eyes. No. I say, I'm not ready to meet you, Mom. Not yet. Please don't tell her I was here. It can be our best secret. He looks me up and down, the faded jeans and the white T-shirt, flagging up something for his attention. Are you a sailor, Mester? I think about that for a moment. The way I've arrived, the peculiar iridescent sea I've had to sail to get here. Yes. His eyes widen at the sight of my white deck shoes with no laces. I speak quickly then, before he takes me further down a road I am unprepared to travel. So, tell me your next best secret, I say. He looks around the yard furtively, then lowers his face into shade, his eyes becoming dark, empty pools, his mouth small and quiet with shadow. You wouldn't, you wouldn't like me if I told you, he said. I would. You won't, honest mister. 
I always will. Promise? And more. I... I killed something, he said. A chill of memory streaks through me until its fist of ice clamps around my heart. How can I have forgotten the sparrow? Fragile and fleeting, a grace note struck from the melody of the sky. No, I say, you haven't. Yes, I have. Grandma says so. I lean forward to see if I can catch the haunting of his eye, the sad corner of his mouth. He tips his head further down. Mom found a sparrow on the floor yesterday morning, he said. And I remember the way the sparrows used to flock around the yard by the hundred, chirruping the ridge tiles, swooping to the weeds, pushing their way through the edges of the concrete, stealing caterpillars and green fly, scouring the rough surfaces with their beaks for breadcrumbs snapped from the tablecloth, and how they would sometimes fall from the sky, like discarded pieces of a memory, dislodged ideas. Was it hurt? I ask. Watching his shame, I can sense how far apart we are, far more than fifty years and a gulf of experience, far more than a faulty memory. Less, but far more than a stranger. I realise how little he's learning to love himself, and I love him all the more for it now. It was flapping around and couldn't stand up. Mom picked it up and put it in there. He points to the milk box on the wall beside the back door, a bit of stained rough ply big enough to hold four pints, a nailed-on sloping roof that lifts up to put the bottles in. Dad put a bit of wire in front so it couldn't get out until it was better. Mom gave it some breadcrumbs and some milk and an egg cup. Did it get better? I asked. No, he said. And that was your fault? I asked. He looks up at me then as if I won't believe him unless I can see the way it has marked his face, realigned the directness of his gaze, held shut some as-yet-unopened flower. Grandma says it was. Me and Mick. Wiggy? I ask. And I see immediately Mick's plump-faced smile beaming out from under a blue and grey school cap. We were going round the yard on our scooters, he says, pretending to be fire engines like the one that came to see to the chimney. We were shouting and dinging like bells, and Grandma came out and told us to be quiet. And were you? Well, for a minute, then we forgot. Grandma came out and said we were making so much noise that if we kept doing it, we'd kill the sparrow that was trying to get better. We'd frighten it to death. And were you quiet then, I say. For a minute, he says. Then we forgot. Grandma came out again and sent Mick home, so I played on my own, and when I went to feed it this morning, it was dead. What did your mum say? She didn't say anything. She wrapped it in a bit of cloth from her sewing machine and put it in the bin when she thought I wasn't looking. And what did Grandma say, remembering now full and well the washbish stupidity that had often slipped from those unthinking lips? I told you so, she'd said. He turns away from me to study the milk box on the wall, as if trying to see the bird still there, still resting, still outside of this bitter memory, then turns back. Do, do you still like me, Lester? Always, I say. 
and it wasn't your fault. Is it, is it all right, though, to remember things like that, even when you're not sure? Yes, I tell him, for a minute, and then forget. He hesitates a moment, then searches my face for, I can't remember what, some kind of brand or secret sign of truth that only small boys know how to access. Tell me some of your big ideas, I say. Well, he says, and he rotates his shoulders independently in a circular motion I'd quite forgotten. Well, me and Mick are going to build a rocket ship, he said. That's brave, I tell him. Mom says it's daft. Well, what does your dad say? He says if I can make it work, he'll give me the money to do it, but it won't cost much. Why? He looks around the yard and at the bin I'm sat on. Well, he says, me and Mick reckon that if we took four bins and fastened them all together on top of each other and put a pointed end on it, it would be big enough, except Dad says it might take six if Wiggy's going, so we'll have to pinch some from the yard next door. So how does it work? I ask. Well, he says, in the library there's a book and there's this rocket engine that looks like a cannon but it's firing all the time and if we put one of them in a the bottom bin, that should do it. Mick and me are saving up our fireworks this year to try it out. I copied the picture. I'm going to ask Dad to get me some pipe from work. Sounds like a big idea to me. Yeah, he says, but it got me into trouble again. I laugh sympathetically, remembering the apprehension that fills this small but questing soul twisting his feet in the yard, knowing that he will always feel the weight of other eyes depressing his shoulder. How did you manage that? Well, he said, I told my teacher. She caught me drawing it when I should have been listening. She told my mum. And what did your mum say? She wanted to know when I got it from. This talk about rocket ships and space. I said that things like thoughts didn't have to come from anywhere. Not like people. You can make them up from bits of things. Like making up a rhyme. They're things you can have on your own. And they're nobody else's. That's what I think. He shuffles up onto the bin next to mine, his eyes searching me sideways, devouring the small logo on my T-shirt. Is that true, Mester? he says. Never more so than now, Billy. I know that will be too cryptic for him, but I also know that he will remember the particular shape of this verbal jigsaw piece. He reaches a slow, tentative finger across the gap between us. I watch it crawl across fifty years and a billion freed ergs of energy to point unerringly at the jacquard logo on my breast. He continues, absorbed by the stitching, almost detached from the words he's speaking. Teacher told Mom I shouldn't be thinking about things that can never happen, I should be doing my spelling instead, but that's too easy. His face colours slightly. I can always do that. Teacher says nobody can ever go to space, so why even bother to think about it? Well, I say, what do you think? He slowly retracts his hands and drops them both into his lap, head down in thought, trying hard to put the words together. At that moment... I want more than anything else in the world to just put my arms around him 
and hold on tightly, to let him know things that I dare not say, and that I never can. I think, he says, that if we don't think about things, then they could never happen. Will it ever happen, mister? What? Well, space and things. If you think about them, I say, much, much more than that will happen. What would you like to do most? Go to space, he says, then adds cautiously, and drive a train. Okay, which first? Don't know, he says, shrugging off a decision. Either. He looks across the yard, away from me, and I know, even without seeing, that I would recognise the screwed lip and the squint that means he's thinking over something he's seen or heard, that has attached itself to a deeper thought pattern, one that rarely surfaces beyond a silent barrier of improbability in his head. Then, that badge, he says, the one on your shirt, what is it? Four bins, I say, with a pointed end on the top. He whirls around to stare at me in disappointment, the originality of his haunting vision of space already beginning to crumble behind his eyes. So you thought about it too, he said. I didn't need to, I tell him. It was enough that you did. You and a lot of other people. The sun threads itself through a cloud, and his eyes catch up the light again. You mean, he says, I'm not daft on my own? Oh, never, I say. There are lots of us. The ones that think they aren't daft are the ones that don't think. Then when they're in trouble or something, they come looking for us. What, to tell us off, he said. I choke down hard on the laugh that rises, an inevitable bubble of hope that we share so intimately. I smile in restraint. Only after we've saved them, I say. Saved them from what? His look of puzzlement almost complete. From dragons in caves, I say. That's my best secret, he says. How do you know about that? Did Mom tell you? No, I say, I just know. But how do you know? He slides off the bin to land back on his feet, takes two steps away into the sunlight, then spins on his heel. I listened outside the teacher's door, he said. She told Mom that all I ever painted was pictures of dragons coming out of caves. She said I must be scared of something. She said there might be something wrong with me, with that and the rocket ship as well. Do you think there's something wrong with me, Mester? Absolutely, I tell him. There's something terribly, wonderfully wrong with you. He stares at me with totally expressionless eyes, but I can see they're a mask that conceals all the troubles and unapportioned blame that the world will ever present him. What's wrong with me, mister? he says. Do I need a doctor? No, I say. The doctor needs you. He shrugs, despondent, dissatisfied with my response. Don't know what I can do. You can think, can't you? But what about? 
anything you like. That's your real best secret. So, Chaz. I look away for the first time since I've arrived. I don't want him to see the potential dishonesty behind my eyes, the fear of discovery, the knowledge that even at seven he is capable of discerning why I am here. The gift I've come to steal. The gift of that sheer unalloyed spike of inspiration, unsullied by too many fears and funereal doubts, hiding within the fragmentary sharps and flats of his belief that all things can sing. I don't want him to share in the uncertainty of my position, or allow him to see that at some time in the future even he will run out of ideas. Want to hear my secret, I say? Yes, he says. Then come closer. His feet shift without hesitation, then pull back, innate common sense dropping into play. More than aware of his sense of preservation, I reach into my pocket and draw out a seashell, identical to the one in his own hand moments earlier. I push it out of the shadow towards him, turning it slowly. See the whirls in the shell, I say, the way they are identical but getting smaller as we travel backwards in time to where the snail was born. He takes out his, and I place them carefully together on his upturned palm. Slowly they meld into one. His face shines up at me, his eyes alight with answers already found, studied and discarded, chasing each other along the fever of his imagination. He snatches the shell and drops it into his pocket. How did you do that? he said. I don't know, I tell him. It shouldn't, but it always does. Want to hear my secret? He moves closer and I whisper into his ear the one-time paradox I can't resolve. He steps back, suddenly, an exaggerated expression manifests across his face, infinitely recombining each leftover piece of aeroplane kit we have ever assembled without the instructions. He plunges his hands deep into both pockets, lost in thought for a moment, then draws out again the single shell. He holds it up to the sun, so that the growth lines show dark against the pink light energy wavering through. What if, he says, and I listen closely to him, and hear the clock he sets ticking in my head. Well, that was the big idea, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. It's... Sometimes it's really difficult for me to read stories like this uh, because I have such an emotional attachment to the stories and sometimes to the content of the story. And this one in particular where you, you're, you're talking about something from your past, uh, the ideas that the young Billy has were all my ideas, the trouble he was in was all my troubles. And, uh, and, and sometimes it's quite difficult to address them in retrospect even. And you realise that uh, even when I am him ten times over now, that 
those things that happened back then still carry an echo inside you, a ripple that seems to hit the boundaries. And instead of escaping the boundaries, you just come back to the centre and from there back out again. And your, your life becomes consumed by things that occurred, mostly inadvertently, uh, mostly not your fault. And uh, we continue to be affected by these. It caused me problems midlife and uh, like it does a lot of people, but thankfully we got over that. But I still find them difficult to read without my eyes filling with tears and my throat choking, uh, as is happening now. So I will leave you with the big idea and I hope that you'll continue to have big ideas all of your own and look after them and look after that child inside you. He's always there or she is always there and they deserve all the love you can find for them and through that love of that child inside yourself you will learn to love the person that you are now so wishing you a happy new year and it's a goodbye from me and a meow from Nelly and uh, we'll talk to you again in approximately a week's time bye <laughs>